The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by LCHF Endurance. Stabilize your blood sugar, burn fat, decrease inflammation and become fat adapted in just 12 weeks. I'm so excited to share with you that LCHF Endurance is currently 50% off for a limited time only. Simply use the code LCHFE50 to sample the program, check out the kind of meals you'll get to eat, and cancel within seven days if it's not your sugar-free jam. Head to lchfendurance.com.au and use the code LCHFE50 for 50% off your upfront program payment today. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 255 of The Real Food Real, we share with you part two of how to prepare for your upcoming season and the key blood tests you need. We explore liver health via a liver function test or LFT, which isn't truly about the function of your liver. We then explore immune function, looking at hematology or white cell count and platelets more specifically. You will learn what this means for your microbiome health and the direction of further testing. We then uncover zinc, copper, their ideal ratios and the key strategies you need to optimize all of these markers and your health, performance and longevity. Hi, gang. So um, it wasn't too long ago on the show that Steph and I opened up part one of this series, Preparing for Your Season, and we were looking specifically at blood test markers that you as athletes might be um, wanting to request in preparation for your season. So we covered some key markers in part one, and there's still plenty for us to look at. So open up to part two to have a look at some other areas of blood testing that you might want to consider. So part one, Steph, just a little recap for those who listened. We looked at uh, markers of blood sugar control. We looked at markers of inflammation and we looked at general nutrient status. Is there anything that I've missed there? Oh, we definitely dived into the total cholesterol heart health myth for those that don't want to go back and, and tune in. Um, but yeah, obviously quite a comprehensive episode. So one you might listen to multiple times. Definitely. And hopefully today's episode as well will be one that you can listen to a few times. So we firstly 
I think one of the things we wanted to firstly look at was liver function markers. It's an important one for athletes to get and an important one for athletes to be aware of when to get as well because we know that the, the results of this testing can be affected by training um, even up to 72 hours prior to doing a liver function test markers can be affected by high intensity training so there's a note just to be conscious of when you're doing your blood testing but what are the key markers that we're looking for in a liver function test yeah i mean let's start there um i just wanted to speak to your point in regards to the timing because it's actually not just liver (laughs) um it happens so often that a client might have intentionally fasted when they're looking at you know markers like cholesterol and triglycerides and so on Um, but reference ranges are based off about a 12-hour fast so if you're going in to get your bloods off a much longer fast and certainly if it's after exercise or I had another example last week where the client sort of hadn't drunk any water so some of their more sort of hydration-based markers were really skewed so yeah it's just considering some of those variables when you are yeah interpret your results that you you factor in what that morning or that previous day and and that day of testing looks like because it can really change things absolutely like those those liver function markers can fluctuate by as much as 30 Mm percent based on um you know the training that was done the day before the the hydration strategy and i don't know the percentages around um, the impacts of like an extended or underdone fast on um, things like homocysteine, but certainly the the fluctuations in those liver function markers is really significant. So, you know, if you're the athlete that's wanting to come in and have a chat with your nutritionist and really look at, uh, you know, how everything is going under the hood, it would be disappointing to then be told like, oh, we can't get a, a really great understanding of what's influencing these markers right now um, if you were training in the lead up to the test. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely worthwhile considering um, for all markers, but yeah, back to the liver. So, I mean, there's a, there's a number, but the, the first two that um, we tend to look at are AST, which is aspartate aminotransferase, and then ALT, which is alanine aminotransferase. So, I'll use the acronyms if that's okay mm-hmm. for today. But um, of course, we're looking at liver function, uh, but these markers are also looking for um, liver damage and longer-term liver disease. Of course, we're not necessarily talking about that right now, but it's a bit of a sliding scale as to these two liver enzymes and and what their roles are. So they're actually proteins made by the liver cells that tell you a lot more about the liver function. Mm. And athletes, you know, why why would strenuous activity or high-intensity activity be impacting these markers? Oh my goodness, so many reasons. <laughs> and so, I mean, yeah, like where do you reckon we should start there? Well, I think by, you know, if you have, um, if you're thinking about the function of the liver, like it is to process any, um, like any muscle breakdown, degradation, damage. Um, and so if there is that like intense and like, constant intense physical activity or for some people it's like you know they've just done a marathon and they smashed it and their liver's put under this pressure to detoxify and that can impact these markers yeah for sure absolutely i think um definitely in relation to high intensity training or training that has been 
quite close to testing, certainly events, which are naturally more higher intensity in most cases. Yeah, we're understanding that the exercise is where there is that sort of breakdown and the recovery process is where there's the repair. And yeah, the liver is obviously involved in that. Um, any byproducts are going to be excreted um, or metabolized by the liver will put a little bit more pressure on the liver. So it's going to look different at that time. Mm, mm. And then, of course, you know, taking the athlete aside, there are going to be other lifestyle factors that are affecting this liver function panel, right? Mm. Um, you know, we would love to think that all of our athletes are, um, you know, healthy and, you know, building their plate accordingly and moderating their alcohol intake and getting their hydration levels where they should be. But the reality is that some of our athletes aren't and those lifestyle choices and factors could be um, you know, in a real sense, impacting liver function. So perhaps not just that point in time test um, or very varied test result that might be associated with an event or intense training, but um, the chronic impact of those lifestyle choices on the liver could be impacting these these markers. Yeah, and the other thing actually in sort of our language that we're using and, and certainly the language that um, blood testing users like these two markers fall under what is called an LFT which is which stands for a liver function test but if we look at it quite truly they're really measuring you know an impairment or a little bit of damage to the liver whereas pure function is bilirubin albumin and the platelets so I'm guilty of using that word function because it falls under an LFT, so the acronym liver function test. But really it's more about, yeah, any sort of damage to the liver, which of course can be caused by what you mentioned um, in terms of, you know, food choices or poor food choices, dehydration, alcohol consumption, and then, you know, training and, and racing as we've discussed. Yeah, yeah. So let's then look at the reference ranges that we're keeping an eye out for these um, liver function markers. Yeah, for sure. So obviously labs differ. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if you're looking at a blood test of your own or a client's that's um, certainly a different lab to what I'm speaking to now or an international lab where the units are different, do keep that in mind. So <laughs> it's going to look a little bit different depending on what piece of paper you've got in front of you, of course. Um But both AST and ALT have a more sort of standard reference range of less than 41 units per litre. So the reference range, rather the units I'm looking at is capital U per litre, which stands for units per litre. So less than 41 is telling us obviously there's no liver damage. Um, I like to sort of break things a little bit more down away from the very ends of the reference range in, in most senses because you know what we what we don't want to see is obviously a 41 that would be quote unquote fine and then a 42 that indicates damage like it's just not possible yeah. for there to be such a distinct difference when there's a, a one unit per liter difference so we want to come away from those extremes of the reference ranges. Um, and for AST, roughly looking for a goal of around sort of 25 to 30 units per litre and ALT, 20 to 25 units per litre. So anywhere outside of that would indicate either liver damage if it's a little bit too high or looking at ways that we can further support the liver to bring ourselves back to optimal function. 
And there's that word again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's another thing to remind people or just to consider is that it's about trends and changes in these, in these numbers. Like, you know, if you're, if you're up at that 40 or 41 units per litre, um, it's not necessarily to say that, you know, you need to, um, to hit the panic alarm, but look at the trends and set yourself a goal of being closer in that in, in the middle of that reference range the next time you test. So, you know, do some work in the meantime, then repeat test and make sure that it's coming down in the right direction to make sure that it is, you know, lifestyle choices, training that's impacting the results as opposed to condition. Yeah. A condition. And I always love when you're getting results from a client who has historical data because, yeah, reference ranges, as we discussed last time, are very broad. They're based on the averages of the people that have been going to the doctors for the last number of decades. And so they can be quite wide and a little bit skewed to illness because that's really who goes to see a doctor, someone who's not well. Um, So yeah, looking at your own personal trends is far more interesting, especially when you have like quite a number of historical um, data lists. Mm, To review. And then what about albumin, globulin, bilirubin? Do you have reference ranges that you use for these? Yeah, absolutely. So let's dive in there. Um, Albumin is actually the main protein made by the liver that's directly related to liver function. So levels outside of our ideal range, um, we'll definitely explore what that means. But to sort of answer your question, first question again it depends on sort of units we're looking at um but i'm sort of looking at like four to four point five grams per deciliter okay all right and yeah that is going to differ depending on um what lab you're looking at yeah if we're looking at sort of grams per liter um roughly 40 is the equivalent of that Mm -hmm. You know, with albumin, it's obviously looking at um, liver function in general. So we can go through some more basic um, tips towards the end of our liver section. But in the case of albumin, it can really look at um, certainly dehydration or inflammation in the digestive tract, um, but also stomach function. So obviously higher up in the gastrointestinal tract and what your stomach acid function looks like as well. So that's something to keep in mind that, of course, we're talking specifically about the liver here, um, but it's really going to be looking at the body as a whole because that's how we eliminate all the things <laughs> from the body. Mm, mm, mm. And why it's so important to assess these markers in the context of the individual and everything else that's there on the on the report, right? Like, um you know, a, you know, one of these markers slightly outside of reference range, you know, depending on the individual, how they are, how they're functioning, how they're feeling, you know, could be something that we, um, that we don't necessarily need to focus too much on. When we start to see a few of these functions out, um, then you can, you know, then you can understand how like albumin might be um, referencing or signifying something else, another area that needs support. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Looking at things in context always. Um, Billy Rubin's an interesting one um, and it actually also brings to mind um, what we've been referring to with um, AST and ALT, that these labs are still using a less than sign. So if you look at a sort of more conventional lab, albumin would be... Um, pardon me, Billy Rubin would be less than 25 um, 
few mole per litre, but what about zero? Is that good? And I don't mm. think that's the case either. So I don't like less than because it's like what we used to say with triglycerides, you know, less than two, but you don't want zero either. So we have to actually really remember that there's going to be a bottom end of the reference range here as well. So remember when we're looking at um, L, uh, Billy Rubin rather, we're wanting like, you know, less than the 25 but higher than two, so definitely not zero. So, you know, I would modify that more standard reference range to between two and 17 umoles per litre, but ideal would be sort of the mid-range there. You know, bilirubin's a byproduct of red blood cell breakdown, so we can definitely see that higher after exercise, especially mm. long, steady-state endurance exercise. Um, and it also looks at how well the liver is conjugating. So that refers to certainly its role in eliminating toxins, hormones, drugs, etc., cetera, um, and our, our gallbladder as well. Mm. So looking at bile production in relation to even our um, fat intake can be relevant here as well because, you know, we need bile for that fatty acid breakdown and this is where it all comes back to things like stomach acid because we need to have that really beautiful environment to be able to tolerate adding in higher fats. And, you know, as a bit of a side note, why some people need to add in their fats a little bit more slowly while they support their stomach acid and bile production, which can take time in someone that's been um, doing a low-fat diet or anyone that's had sort of stomach issues or has been taking proton pump inhibitors and the list goes on. Mm, yeah. And then obviously the influence of the proton pump inhibitors and the pharmaceuticals on the role of the liver to do further detoxing. Like, yes, it's just a, it's just a cycle. Yeah, hundred percent. So that's really fascinating. Um, but yeah, do you want to um, talk about any other markers or talk about um, general level, level support from a sort of a, a foundational point of view? No, I think those markers are fine. We've covered the main ones that, yeah, you'd see on the function panel, ALT, as AST, bilirubin, albumin. We didn't look at globulin. Did you want to touch on that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, this is an interesting one as well. Um, globulins obviously play a really important role in the liver, but they also are involved in your immune system, so fighting infection, blood clotting, which occurs even in something as so simple as um, a paper cut. And so, yeah, of course, we're looking at the liver, but we're looking beyond that and looking deeper at the immune system. Mm -hmm. um, our, where are we? So our sort of more standard reference ranges, um, I'll just need to find the right page. I don't know that one off by heart, but I know we're looking for about, you know, a goal of around 30 grams per litre. Um, Globulin, yeah, the reference range is 23 to about 39. So we're putting you in the middle of that reference range. Again, um, just to look at, yeah, what's optimal for you and your goals to support your liver to detox toxins, hormones, um, pharmaceuticals, if that applies, of course, and then really support your immune system, which we'll go on to talk about shortly, but you all know is very important because a lot of people who don't support their immune system are those that get sick the minute they've stopped training or in taper, they're falling apart after a race, they're suffering from a lot of immune suppression 
and, you know, it's making it really hard for them to recover and get back into training and racing. So having that really great understanding of your immune system is so important here as well. Yeah, definitely. And I can't tell you how commonly in practice I see these globulin levels actually quite low. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for athletes, putting their immune system under challenge um, day in, day out, I do often see these globulin levels low. So just a, yeah, you then take that into conjunction with other markers of immune function um, and really prior and really steer the direction from there. Yeah, absolutely. And it, because on that general chemistry page, usually it's on its a page with electrolytes um, and the other LFT markers, total protein, etc. It's not on like the white blood cells, neutrophils page. So I often think it gets forgotten about as, as the, that immune role. So it's great mm. that we're looking at that um, from a liver point of view, but then starting to connect the dots between what we see in, say, the hematology, which is where we would look at white cell count, red blood cell, like I referred to before, and, of course, platelets and the rest. Yeah. So do you want to move on then to looking at the hematology and looking at the, 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 the white cell count markers in particular? Yeah, definitely related to immune function more specifically. Um, so WCC or white cell count um, the lab that we use mostly has a reference range of um, four to 11. And this is to the power of nine um, per litre, so units per litre. Um, whereas we obviously don't want to have quite low levels of that. So, you know, again, roughly between six to eight um, to the power of nine per litre really is telling us that that beautiful balance from an immune point of view. So if it's higher and certainly outside the reference range, it's looking like, you know, definitely like infection level, but underneath that is where we can see strenuous exercise, even intakes of um, high intakes of sugar and refined carbohydrates can be picked up here as well. So that's really interesting from an immune point of view. Um, mm. Then... Yeah, like obviously looking at what we can do here to support the immune system, but we all know that 80% of our immune system is in the gut. So I often see white cell counts um, and platelets, which we'll get to next, that are quite suppressed, indicating immune suppression when there is something like a long-standing parasite, dysbiosis, intestinal permeability. So it can be quite a um, red flag for someone, especially in the case of someone who is really quite robust from an immune point of view. You know, it's really yeah. obvious when someone's been sick or that they're that sickly kind of person to see white cells and platelets that are suboptimal. But in a really otherwise well client from an immune, from a more obvious immune point of view, white cells and platelets can give you that red flag to go deeper and test the gut further, which mm. I love to see that in a blood test, which, you, you know, you often for us receive almost straight away or within the first month of working to a, with a client. So then it really directs your next step and also your testing budget as we've spoken about yes. before. We're not ones to go and send our clients away to have $3,000 worth of tests done before we work with them. Um, so if we're seeing this in someone that hasn't looked at their gut further, has never done a PCR for parasites and so on, then, yeah, we can talk them through their testing next steps and look at their budget together, of course. 
Yeah. And I was just going to say how cool that is and how powerful just these, you know, these blood tests and, and we're talking through tests that most individuals would be able to get through their GP, um, you know, if they haven't had t- testing done in 12 months. So like how cool is it that we can use these test results in, com- in you know, in conjunction with one another to paint a picture that, that then does help to direct the next steps. And just as you said, like where your testing budget goes, because not everybody has, you know, an infinite amount of money to spend on, you know, their gut health testing and their repeat testing. But if we can use and harness these tests that we have available to us through Medicare to to strategize, then I just think that's fantastic. And why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, I totally agree. So let's do platelets and then we'll circle back to look at our foundational liver suggestions and immune together. So I want to make sure we cover those for some really great tips that you guys can start to use as your takeaways. Um, platelets are again to the power of nine per litre. Um, standard reference ranges would be like 150 to 450. I would like to see you much higher than 150. So sort of looking at the top third of the reference range there for platelets. So let's say, you know, 250 to um, 400 um, to the power of nine per litre. So platelets are definitely involved in blood clotting once again. Um, so that is obviously what you you might need to factor in if you had an injury or or obvious cut or you're like me and like to cut your finger with a knife whenever you're cooking. Um, But they're also um, responsible for transporting other compounds in the blood. So um, we look at this for, yeah, whether you've got elevated CRP, the C-reactive protein, the inflammatory marker that we discussed in part one, Similarly, homocysteine, when there is inflammation in the body, um, infection, blood loss, anemia, and then, yeah, if there is any sort of underlying autoimmune diseases, which we'll talk about briefly in relation to the thyroid shortly. So very important to look at um, balancing out your hematology from an, an immune cell point of view and the understanding the relationship there with the liver as well. So Ellie, do you want to take us through some of your foundational liver strategies? Totally. So looking at the liver, I think obviously you're working from the bottom up, right? So, you know, trying to understand what is being taken care of on that bottom level, um, you know, hydration. Are you drinking your two litres of water per day? Um, Are you taking um, medications unnecessarily? So, um, you know, looking at what you can potentially strip back. Of course, working with your prescribing physician if it's, um, uh, you know, if it's not a medication that you just put yourself on, but um, looking at, you know, are you, ne- are you necessarily on everything that you need to be? Um, on that though as well, yeah, how long you've been on these drugs and have mm-hmm. you had a reassessment? Like one thing that always comes to mind with me is a client who was prescribed x milligrams of y medication when they weighed like 100 kilos or more mm-hmm. and they've lost lots of weight they've gotten really fit um and they're still taking the same amount it also applies like to the thyroid i see people taking thyroxine so like in absence of a you know total total thyroid remove removal if you're going away and doing heaps of gut stuff getting off gluten fixing your dysbiosis there's no way you need the same amount of thyroxine but often there's never any um check-in there's never any any reassessment and that's something i encourage you to do with your primary care practitioner 
absolutely. And statins is another one. You know, um, you know, you've worked with a physician. You know, ten years ago, I've got a client at the moment in this very position who was put on, um, a, you know, a lipid altering medication, um, basically on on a total cholesterol score and. Now, six or maybe seven years down the track, you know, their, their gut's in great order, they're, they're, the rest of their lipid panel is looking fantastic, they're healthy, they've got great blood sugar control. So, yeah, like look, looking at that, that six-year-old, seven-year-old pharmaceutical um, uh, prescription and assessing that, is it necessary? Because if it isn't necessary, then it's unnecessarily burden on the liver. And I think that's a like that is that needs to be part of that like foundation of yeah you know what can I do to support my liver but also what can I do to take pressure off my liver mm, if need be. 100%. Mm. Um, green cruciferous vegetables I will always put as part of the foundation for somebody that's um, maybe just we've seen um, we've seen altered liver function for the first time um, and maybe they're not eating enough vegetables so I would always talk on the benefits of you know those green cruciferous vegetables so our broccoli our cauliflower our Brussels sprouts um, uh, cabbage um, so those sulfur containing cruciferous vegetables really really important and so easily done yeah like you do this before you start taking any sort of supplement make sure you are getting these you know these cruciferous vegetables ideally at the two cups per day yeah and that might sound a lot to a lot of people oh yeah like some people would just think oh, i've got to get two cups of vegetables in a day and then when they learn it's you know it's not just it's it's you know it's six cups of vegetables over the course of the day. And within that, there's that goal of two cups of cruciferous vegetables. But when you start actually, you know, you, when you start putting this goal within your mind, you know that, okay, um, supporting my liver could be as simple as making sure that in my stir fry, it's broccoli and cauliflower florets, and then I add whatever else I want um, it's, it actually is really simple. You just need to have that idea in your mind and allow that to dictate, um, you know, the veggies that you choose to include. So it can be super simple um, in reality. And another one that I love using is turmeric. So turmeric provides beautiful support for the liver and it's something that we can so easily build into our day-to-day, right? So, you know, we can use organic turmeric powder or we can use freshly grated um, turmeric and we can include that in so many ways and we're really just looking for, um, you know, I like to recommend between three to five teaspoons of turmeric over the course of the week to be getting, to be getting a benefit but how easily could you build this in, right? Like you could mix it into your curries or your soups if you're making sort of wet dishes. Um, you could mix turmeric powder into your eggs if you're making an omelette or scrambled eggs. You could make a turmeric tea or a turmeric latte. You could sprinkle it onto your vegetables if you're roasting them. So there's lots of different ways that you can build it in. And it's far cheaper than buying a liver support um, capsule with turmeric in there or buying liver so sorry or buying turmeric capsules themselves yeah sometimes sometimes a higher dose might be needed but i think just that that place to start is get it in your cooking get it in your day-to-day so we've looked at hydration we've looked at your pharmaceuticals we've looked at your green cruciferous vegetables turmeric intake 
Um, what else have I missed, Steph? What, what else would you put in your foundations? Um, sometimes I do look at herbal teas mm, because yeah. we're trying to avoid taking too many pills and potions. And um, a lot of people I like, you know, I work with like to sort of find more food-based or beverage-based ways, which is why I love the turmeric. I actually put it in my smoothie. You can't taste it. So there is a really great herb called silymarin, or you might see it as milk thistle. It's not dairy-based. It's not milk-based. So I use the word silymarin so we don't get confused. Um, that's a really great tea, or you might see it in a liver-based blend. So certainly, um, you know, Puka Herbs is a very popular tea brand that sell liver blends, but you can find them nearly everywhere in a really great um, quality brand of tea. Maybe even, you know, your naturopath stocks them or we stock um, the Fitzroy naturopath's tea at the clinic at the natural nutritionist. There's lots of different options, but that can be a really lovely way to get more herbs in via a beverage, which contributes to your hydration um, quota as well. (laughs) Goals. Yeah, absolutely. And and so easy to get your hands on milk thistle tea Um, and dandelion as well is another tea that you can build into the mix. Yeah, lovely. Um, and then looking at sort of some of the immune support, um, of course, big go-to is vitamin C. Um, I tend to prescribe a more higher dose than your standard sort of chewable tablets that most of our listeners are familiar with. They're roughly about 500 milligrams to one gram. But, you know, usually I'm looking at maybe two and a half grams a day to start. In excess, it can um, affect our digestive function, so it can be quite laxative in nature. So just keeping that in mind, if you are a little bit sensitive, you can certainly split your dose. Um, mm. It's a really great way to look at supporting your immune system and then obviously what you eat um, and then looking at your gut, whether it's via, you know, your cultural wellness, coconut yogurt or coconut kefir, um, fermented vegetables, any other sort of probiotics foods that you might enjoy. Um, that's obviously where you can really look at food and beverage-based ways to support your immune system. Um, but as we discussed earlier, maybe talking with your practitioner about some further testing to understand why we're seeing those changes in white cell count or platelets. Mm, Yeah, exactly. And um, making sure you're working with a practitioner so you also don't, you know, do the old Dr. Google and start diagnosing yourself with a million and one things, Um, you know, work with your practitioner so that you can talk about what variables what might be going on that could be impacting, um, you know, your white cell count so that you don't, start, you don't start diagnosing yourself because that is probably um, one of the worst things that you can do when you're analysing a blood test result on your own is to do the old Dr. Google and then, um, you know, start to stress yourself out, raise your cortisol levels based on what you find <laughs> found on there. Oh, my goodness. I know. I've had, I've just had a, coming to mind a couple of examples lately of clients that have had um, blood test results that, you know, might have some asterisks or some bold or some red depending on how they're delivered from the lab and, um, you know, days of worry until they can either go back for a repeat or um, speak to me in a consult. And, yeah, like whilst I'm really big on educating yourself and I love those that are, you know, going about um, understanding their health and empowering themselves with knowledge, you're going to draw the, draw the line between creating stress and, and 
maybe getting your information from an incorrect source. So try and find that Goldilocks um, spot, that sweet spot, if possible. Mm-hmm. Now, is there anything else that you wanted to say on the immune function or the, the white cell count? Are you happy if we move on to some other markers that I would really love to get in this discussion for our athletes? Yeah, well, I mean, a, a great segue is is zinc being part of that immune function as well. And that's something that we test with all of our clients to look at, yeah, like what is their um, immune support like? And then, you know, zinc is all about wound healing, whether that's something more obvious or looking at the integrity of the small intestine. So a really important nutrient if there is any um, permeability, of course, but certainly for all of us to make sure that we are supporting our gut lining, essentially. So I often see low zinc. I don't know about you, Ali, but I like to see um, my zinc between sort of 15 to 19 new mole per litre. I rarely see that. I'm seeing lots of nines and and tens, which is that sort of even looking at um, outside a sort of more conventional reference range, which seems to be quite common. What are your thoughts on on what you see with your clients? Well, I guess I'm a little bit biased at the moment because I'm working with um, so many plant-based individuals and athletes. and, And of course, when we look at those most bioavailable sources of zinc, um, we're looking at, um, you know, sardines, grass-fed beef, lamb, liver, things like that. So I do tend to see a lot of people who've got low zinc levels. Um, yeah, I very rarely would see it at that 15. Um, probably mm. like usual would be between 9 and 12. But I do have a little bit of a, I guess, a bugbear with zinc that I want to get off my chest. And that is the number of people that are um, self-prescribing with zinc because they have heard about the benefits of zinc for immune function or for skin. And it's not something that you want to prescribe yourself or, you know, something that you want to pick for yourself off the shelf and then supplement with blindly for, you know, 6, 12, 24 months. Um, because, because as with most of, um, most of the things that we've talked about and whenever we talk about supplements on the show, like the amount you have is relative to you and where you're at in your stage in life. Um, so, please don't listen to a podcast and go and buy a supplement off the shelf and just start having it. Like understand your levels and understand what the dose needs to look like, look like and how long you need to be at that dose for because supplements have a lifespan and yeah. you don't want to be taking them blindly and then risking toxic levels. Yeah, the same applies to D I can think of as well because what's interesting yeah. is that like if we look at, say, in my world at least, commonly a zinc could contain 15 milligrams of zinc in one capsule, 30 milligrams in one capsule, or 50 in one capsule. And I know we're not talking about D today, but that could literally contain 1,000 international units, 7,000 international units. It could contain 10,000 international units or more. And so taking one capsule a day means nothing. You've got to go Mm. and look at the product, the milligrams, or the international units, depending on what you're talking about. And, yeah, appreciate that. As a bottom and a top end of a reference range, more is not rarely is it more, <laughs> truthfully. Yeah, yeah, and um, and and, mm. and also if you're somebody that has put yourself on multiple supplements, then be really conscious of 
um, oh, you know, if there's, any sort of, if there's any sort of multivitamin, minerals, gut healing products, um, magnesium blends, like there's often zinc there in those products. So you need to make sure you're being really conscious of where you're getting all your sources of zinc from and how much that equates to, to yeah. in a total. I actually, I totally agree. And obviously at TNM, we've made a really concerted effort to make sure we're really aware of what our clients are taking because a lot of people are coming to us with quite a list of supplements that we haven't necessarily prescribed. So we obviously run a fine tooth comb through that. But yet zinc is one that is in a lot, like you said. It's one of the ones that we really need to make sure we're counting all the milligrams because if you want your client to take 50 milligrams a day, let's say, for example, they might already be doing that through multiple blends and not need to take a zinc on its own. So, yeah, looking at the big picture as always. Yeah. And my other little gripe with zinc is that often, just getting this off my chest as well, <laughs> often, when, often when we're asking for a zinc test, because as we've probably talked about on the show, you know, you and I can't can't approve tests on Medicare. You know, we have to we have to encourage our our clients to work with their physician, their doctor, to get those Medicare approved tests. But often they will go away with the letter that we've um, we've given them with the request for zinc and alongside that a request for copper. Now, what often comes back is that zinc test on its own. But what we know is that when you're assessing zinc levels, it's really nice to be able to have that copper figure there. Um, because you don't, you ideally wouldn't be assessing them in isolation. You'd be seeing what that zinc level is in re, in respect to the copper level. Now, ideally, we'd want to see like a one to one, but ideally, like a point seven to one copper to zinc ratio. Mm. I don't know about what you're seeing in clinic, but I see it in the exact opposite direction. So, you know, one-to-one is almost a great scenario, but often what I'm seeing is like a 1.2 or sometimes up to like a 2.2 to Mm. one copper to zinc ratio. Yeah, so just to break that down further, if we're just saying, all right, it's great that you have a zinc of 15, then a one-to-one ratio would obviously be a copper of 15. But if your copper is higher, then, yeah, that's starting to look quite problematic. And we'll explore why, but just sort of give you a bit of a reference range to to set the scene a little bit more, the reference range um, for copper is usually 13 to 25. So imagine if you had a zinc of um, nine, <laughs> which is that very bottom end of the reference range, and a copper of 25. Like it's just so far apart that it's going to create a real issue. But the irony is, is that high copper often creates the low zinc because it binds to the zinc and it causes that really poor absorption or the inability to absorb the zinc. So Going back to your earlier point about self-prescribing zinc, unless you do something with your high copper, that supplement will just be bound like your food-based zinc and it will go out. It will be eliminated by the body and not stored. So you really have to understand, do you have low zinc because you've got leaky gut or is it, which we see quite commonly, because of your high copper? And so really trying to push for that test or pay for it. It's a fairly affordable test. I don't have the exact um, amount in front of me, but it's not going to be anywhere near in the realm of salivary testing that we've spoken to you guys about or microbiome testing. So looking at those trace metals um, in the blood together and understanding that inverse relationship and and getting that balance back to a one-to-one, like you said, or even 0.7, which would look like a higher zinc than copper. So hypothetically, a zinc of 15 and a copper of 13 would be awesome. And the units I'm speaking in is um, the UMEL per litre. 
Yeah. I think last time I looked or like copper, you know, couldn't be anywhere outside of like 30 or $60 to get that test mm-hmm. done yeah. in isolation. Yeah. So 40 bucks. So yeah, copper is an interesting one. Um, really high copper has been found. It's known as say Wilson syndrome and it can actually really affect us from a mental health point of view. That's obviously sort of outside the scope of today's conversation. So if we look at athletes in a whole, like, you know, you want to be looking at addressing that high copper, which triathletes often have because of their chlorine exposure. So if you are swimming in a chlorine pool, you've got to really make sure you wash extremely well post-chlorine exposure, getting some great natural body products that are low tox, of course, to do the job. Even like charcoal body washes can be awesome to get the excess chlorine off so that you then helping that that whole relationship between zinc and copper. But for everyone, it's got to be about filtered water. The biggest reason I see high copper and as a result low zinc is because we're still drinking tap water. And I'm a bit of a food snob. I'm not ashamed of it, but I'm also a massive water snob. And um, again, not ashamed of that. I think the water that we consume is very important and we don't want um, chemicals, toxins, hormones, like antibiotics coming through our water. So getting a really good um, water filter either installed at home if you own your home or I have a simple sort of countertop both at home and at the clinic from Pure Water Systems. Not sponsored. I just love their products because they're really affordable and you only change the filter once a year. The problem with the Brita filter is that it needs changing every two weeks. Do you change it? No. Does it then work? No. So looking at something that might cost $1 to $200 but doesn't need to be looked at for one year is so much more sensible. And then you're drinking filtered water and your whole family is too, which is very important. Mm. And these lifestyle factors that are going to impact, let's say, lifestyle choices around like the water that you drink um, and, you know, what you do after you've swum, these are really important to take into consideration because, yes, you can use, um, you know, you can use supplements like vitamin C or NAC to help reduce those copper levels. But if you're still constantly exposed to these factors that are causing the high copper levels then those supplements are just going to work for a short period of time or not at all um so you've really got to take care of where the exposure to the copper is yeah very good point so make those lifestyle changes and of course in the short term if you've got really high copper it might be fine to be prescribed vitamin c or n-acetylcysteine um but i would try to look at yeah what can i do long term forever that's sustainable because you don't want to take NAC long-term anyway. That can impact your gut permeability. Like vitamin C is another conversation. But, yeah, just having that bigger perspective and looking at, all right, where is that copper coming from? The other thing, it's a bit, bit more old school but still relevant, is copper cookware. If there's too much of that, copper IUDs for our females. So just taking a step back, a 30,000-foot view, lifestyle changes first, supplements on top of that after, of course, yes, real food. Mm, mm. Awesome. So yeah, good. So copper and zinc, get them done together. Outcome from this conversation. Yeah, I love it. God, there's so much more we could explore, but copper I want to just to sort of wrap finish on is um, definitely more common in our female athletes because of estrogen, right? So we've spoken a lot about hormones in the past, but estrogen can actually cause copper accumulation, retention, and it can result in those more toxic levels. So understanding your 
hormonal picture if you do have high estrogen or if you don't if you're not aware of that looking at some salivary hormone testing can be helpful as well so I'll link up our episode on um, salivary hormones in the show notes but yeah understanding um, if you've got that sort of more hormonal picture estrogen dominance is that more sort of pear-shaped cellulite picture um, not always but if you don't yet know about it, that might sort of direct your thoughts to further testing and then to understand the relationship between high estrogen and copper and then, yeah, even more so with copper IUDs and um, other uh, estrogen-mimicking compounds like we see in, say, plastics and our um, beauty regime. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. there's so much we could talk about here, isn't there? Like we've only we've only looked at like the liver function, the um, the hematology and zinc and copper. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we put it out to people if they want to hear more, then we'll absolutely build on this and do a do a part three. Um, but there's there's definitely more we could look at, isn't there, in terms of um, season prep. Oh yeah, and one we didn't get to today by um, to do it justice in terms of it's the big picture by itself is a thyroid. So let's let's do that. Let's talk about thyroid function. Um, certainly TSH, free T three, free T four, uh, reverse T three, antibodies, and what that means next time. And of course, guys, let us know if there's any other blood tests that you'd really like to hear from us about because I'm loving this series. And, of course, um, please do reach out to us because Ali and I are both available. Um, we're, you know, pretty fully booked at the moment, but there's always changes, so we're more than welcome to either speak to you via a complimentary 15-minute consultation um, to address any of your initial questions and get you booked in for your first appointment because we'd love to help you optimise your health, performance and longevity. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Steph. It's always so great to have these conversations with you. And um, yeah, I can't wait to part three. Yeah, me too. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.